Section thirteen of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section thirteen. A Pilgrim on the Gila. Part two. I'm anti anything I can't sell, young man. Here's all there is to silver. Once upon a time it was hard to get, and we had to have it. Now it's easy. When it gets as common as dirt, it'll be as cheap as dirt. Same as watermelons when it's a big crop. Do you follow me? That's silver for you, and I don't want it. So you've come away down here. Well, well. What did you say your name was? I told him. Politician? God forbid! Oh, well, yes. I took a look at those buzzards there in Washington, our Senate and representatives. They were screeching a heap, all about ratios. You'll be sawing wood yet, he shouted to the driver, and strode up to help him back a horse. Now, ratio is a good-sounding word, too, and I guess that's why they chew on it so constant. Better line of language that they get at home. I'll tell you about Congress. Here's all there is to it. You can divide them birds in two lots, those who know better and those who don't. Do you follow me? And which kind is the boy orator? Limber Jim? Oh, he knows better. I know Jim. You see, we used to have a saying in Salt Lake that California had the smallest stoves and the biggest liars in the world. Now, Jim, well, there's an old saying busted. But you'll see Arizona'll go back on the Democrats. If they put wool on the free list, she'll stay Republican. And they won't want her admitted, which suits me first rate. My people here are better off as they stand. But your friend Mr. Jenks favors admission, I exclaimed. Luke? He's been talking to you, has he? <laughs> well, now, Luke, here's all there is to him. Natural gas. That's why I support him, you see. If we sent a real smart man to Washington, he might get us made a state. <laughs> oh, but, but Luke stays here most of the time, and he's no good anyway. Oh, oh, so you're buying no mines this season. Once more I found myself narrating the insignificance of my visit to Arizona. The bishop must have been a hard inquisitor for even the deeply skillful to elude, and for the first time my word was believed. He quickly took my measure, saw that I had nothing to hide, and after telling me I could find good hunting and scenery in the mountains north, paid me no further attention, but masterfully laid some final commands on the intimidated driver. Then I bade good-bye to the bishop and watched that old locomotive moving vigorously back along the road to his manifold business. The driver was ill-pleased to go hungry for his supper until Thomas, but he did not dare complain much over the new rule, even to Black Curly and me. This and one other thing impressed me. Some miles farther on we had passed out of the dust for a while and rolled up the flaps. "'She's waiting for you,' said the driver to Black Curly, and that many-sided youth instantly dived to the bottom of the stage, his boots and pistol among my legs. "'Throw your coat over me,' he urged. 
I concealed him with that and a mail sack, and stretched my head out to see what lioness stood in his path. But it was only a homelike little cabin, and at the door a woman, comely and mature, eyeing the stage expectantly. Possibly wife, I thought, more likely mother, and I ask, Is Mrs. Follett strict? Choosing a name to fit either. The driver choked and chirruped, but no sound came from under the mail sack until we had passed the good day to the momentous female whose response was harsh with displeasure as she wheeled into her door. A sulky voice then said, "'Tell me when she's gone, Bill.' But we were a safe two hundred yards on the road before he would lift his head, and his spirits were darkened during the remainder of the journey. "'Come and live east,' said I, inviting him to some whiskey at the same time. Back there they don't begin sitting up for you so early in the evening. This did not enliven him, although upon our driver it seemed to bring another fit, as much beyond the proportion of my joke as his first had been. She tires a man's spirit, said Black Curly, and with this rueful utterance he abandoned the subject. So that when we reached Thomas in the dim night my curiosity was strong and I paid little heed to this new place where I had come, or to my supper. Black Curly had taken himself off, and the driver sat at the table with me, still occasionally snickering in its plate. He would explain nothing that I asked him until the gaunt woman who waited on us left us for the kitchen, when he said with a nervous, hasty relish, The widow Sproud is slick, and departed. Consoled by no better clue than this, I went to bed in a downstairs room, and in my strange rising next day I did not see the driver again. Callings in the air awaked me, and a wandering sound of wheels. The gaunt woman stood with a lamp in my room, saying the stage was ready, and disappeared. I sprang up blindly, and again the callings passed in the blackness outside long cries inarticulate to me wheels heavily rolled to my door and a whip was struck against it and there loomed the stage and i made out the calling it was the three drivers about to separate before the dawn on their three diverging ways and they were wailing their departure through the town that travellers might hear in whatever place they lay sleeping bowie all aboard came from somewhere, dreary and wavering, met at further distance by the floating antiphonal, Aboard, aboard for Grant! And in the chill black air my driver lifted his portion of the strain, chanting, Carlos! Carlos! One last time he circled in the nearer darkness with his stage to let me dress mostly unbuttoned and with not even a half-minute to splash cold water in my eyes i clambered solitary into the vehicle and sat among the leather mail-bags some boxes and a sack of grain having four hours yet till breakfast for my contemplation i heard the faint reveille at camp thomas 
but to me it was a call for more bed, and I pushed and pulled the grain-sack until I was able to distribute myself and in a manner doze, shivering in my overcoat. Not the rising of the sun upon this blight of sand, nor the appearance of a cattle-herd, and both black curly and yellow driving it among its dust-clouds, warmed my frozen attention as I lay in a sort of spell. I saw with apathy the mountains, extraordinary in the crystal prism of the air, and soon after the strangest scene I have ever looked on by the light of day. For, as we went along, the driver would give a cry, and when an answering cry came from the thorn-bush, we stopped, and a naked Indian would appear, running, to receive a little parcel of salt or sugar or tobacco he had yesterday given the driver some humble coin to buy for him in Thomas. With changeless pagan eyes staring a moment at me on my sack of grain, and a grunt when his purchase was set in his hands, each black-haired desert figure turned away, the bare feet moving silent, and the copper body, stark naked except the breech-clout, receding to dimness in the thorn-bush. But I lay incurious at this new vision of what our wide continent holds in fee under the single title United States, until breakfast came. This helped me, and I livened somewhat at finding the driver and the breakfast-man were both genuine meekums, as Jenks had told me they would be. It surprised me to discover now that I was looked for along the Gila, and my name approximately known, and when I asked if my friend Captain Stirling had spoken of my coming, it was evidently not he, but the news was in the air. This was a prominence I had never attained in any previous part of the world, and I said to the driver that I supposed my having no business made me a curiosity. That might have something to do with it, he answered. He seemed to have a literal mind. But some had thought I was the paymaster. Folks up here, he explained, are liable to know who's coming. If I lived here, said I, I should be anxious for the paymaster to come early, and often. Well, it does the country good. The soldiers spend it all right here, and us civilians profit some by it. Having got him into conversation, I began to introduce the subject of Black Curly, hoping to lead up to the Widow Sproud. But before I had compassed this, we reached San Carlos, where a blow awaited me. Sterling, my host, had been detailed on a scout this morning. I was stranded here, a stranger, where I had come thousands of miles to see an old friend. His regret and messages to make myself at home, and the quartermaster's hearty will to help me do so, could not cure my blankness. He might be absent two weeks or more. I looked round at Carlos and its staring sand. Then I resolved to go at once to my other friends, now stationed at Fort Grant for I had begun to feel myself at an immense distance from any who would care what happened to me for good or ill, and I longed to see some face I had known before. So in gloom I retraced some unattractive steps. 
This same afternoon I staged back along the sordid, incompetent Gila River, and to kill time pushed my Sproud inquiry, at length with success. To check the inevitably slipshod morals of a frontier commonwealth, Arizona has a statute that in reality only sets in writing a presumption of the common law, the ancient presumption of marriage, which is that when a man and woman go to housekeeping for a certain length of time, they shall be deemed legally married. In Arizona, this period is set at twelve months, and ten had run against Mrs. Sproud and young Follett. He was showing signs of leaving her. The driver did not think her much entitled to sympathy, and certainly she showed later that she could devise revenge. As I thought over these things, we came again to the cattle herd, where my reappearance astonished yellow and black curly. Nor did the variance between my movements and my reported plans seem wholly explained to them by Sterling's absence, and at the station where I had breakfast I saw them question the driver about me. This interest in my affairs heightened my desire to reach Fort Grant and when next day I came to it after another waking to the chanted antiphonals and another faint reveille from Camp Thomas in the waning dark, extreme comfort spread through me. I sat in the club with the officers, and they taught me a new game of cards called Solo and filled my glass. Here were lieutenants, captains, a major, and a colonel, American citizens with a love of their country, and a standard of honor. Here floated our bright flags serene against the lofty blue, and the mellow horn sounded at guard-mounting, bringing moisture to the eyes. The day was punctuated with the bright trumpet. People went and came in the simple dignity of duty, and once again I talked with good men and women. God bless our soldier people! I said it often. They somewhat derided my uneasiness in the Gila Valley, and found my surmising sensational. Yet still they agreed much ready money was an unwise thing on a stage journey, although their profession, I suppose, led them to take being held up less seriously than I with my peaceful traditions of elevators and the downtown lunch. In the wide Sulphur Springs Valley, where I rode at large, but never so long or so far that Fort Grant lay not in sight across that miracle of air, it displeased me to come one morning upon yellow and black curly jogging along beneath the government telegraph line. "'You cover a wide range,' said I. "'Cowboys have to,' they answer. "'So you've not quit us yet.' I'm thinking of taking a hunt and fish towards Fort Apache. We're your men, then. You'll find us at Thomas any time. We're gathering stock up these draws, but that'll be through this week. They spurred their horses and vanished among the steep little hills that run up to Mount Graham. But indeed they should be no men of mine. Sterling had written me his scout was ended, and San Carlos worth a longer visit than I had made there, promising me an escort should I desire to camp in the mountains. An escort it should be, and no yellow or black curly, 
over-curious about my private matters. This fell in excellently with the coming paymaster's movements. Major Pigcock was even now on his way to Fort Grant from Fort Bowie, and when he went to Thomas and Carlos I would go too in his ambulance, and I sighed with pleasure at escaping that stage again. Major Pidcock arrived in a yellow duster, but in other respects differed from the bishop, though in his body a bulky man. We were introduced to each other at the club. "'I am glad, sir, to meet you at last,' I said to him. "'The whole Gila Valley has been taking me for you.' "'Ah, ah,' said Pidcock vaguely, and pulling at some fat papers in his coat. "'Indeed.' I understand that is a very ignorant population. Colonel Vincent, a word with you. The department commander requests me, and here he went off into some official talk with the colonel. I turned among the other officers who were standing by an open locker having whiskey, and Major Evley put his hand on my shoulder. He doesn't mean anything, he whispered, while the rest looked knowingly at me. Presently the colonel explained to Pidcock that he would have me to keep him company to Carlos. Ah, the colonel, of course we don't take civilians not employed by the government, as a rule, but exceptions uh, can be made, he said to me. I will ask you to be ready immediately after breakfast tomorrow. And with that he bowed to us all, and sailed forth across the parade ground. The colonel's face was red, and he swore in his quiet voice, but the lips of the lieutenants by the open locker quivered fitfully in the silence. "'Don't mind Pidcock,' Evley remarked. "'He's a paymaster.' And at this the line officers became disorderly, and two lieutenants danced together, so that without catching Evley's evidently military joke I felt pacified. And I've got to have him to dinner, sighed the colonel, and wandered away. You'll get on with him, man. You'll get on with him in the ambulance, said my friend Paisley. Flatter him, man. Just ask him about his great strategic stroke at Cayuse Station that got him his promotion to the pay department. Well, we made our start after breakfast, Major Pidcock and I, and another passenger, too, who sat with the driver, a black cook going to the commanding officers at Thomas. She was an old plantation mammy, with a kind but bewildered face, and I am sorry that the noise of our driving lost me much of her conversation, for whenever we slowed, and once when I walked up a hill, I found her remarks to be steeped in a flighty charm. "'For Lord's sake,' said she, What's that? And when the driver told her that it was a jackrabbit, you go long, she cried outraged. I's seed rabbits earlier in the morning than yourself. She watched the animal with all her might, muttering, Blah, see him squat, and hold on, hold on, and yes, sir, he done gone for show. My gracious, you let me have a scatter shotguns and spike-tailed smell-dog, and I'll get one of the narrow-engaged mules. I shall not notice it, said Major Pidcock to me with dignity, but 
They should have sent such a creature by the stage. It's unsuitable, wholly. Unquestionably, said I, straining to catch the old lady's song on the box. Don't forget I's a-comin' behind you, lamb slam de lunch lamb. This is insufferable, said Pidcock. I shall put her off at Cedar Springs. I suppose the drive was long to him, but to me it was not. Noon and Cedar Springs prematurely ended the first half of this day most memorable in the whole medley of my excursion, and we got down to dine. Two travellers bound for Thomas by our same road were just setting out, but they firmly declined to transport our cook, and Pidcock moodily saw them depart in their wagon, leaving him burdened still for this was the day the stage made its down-trip from Thomas. Never before had I seen water paid for. When the Major, with windy importance, came to settle his bill, our dozen or fourteen escort horses and mules made an item, the price of watering two head being two bits, quite separate from the feed, and I learned that water was thus precious over most of the territory. Our cook remounted the box in high feather, and began at once to comment upon Arizona. "'Dear ain't no winter, nor no spring, nor no rain the whole year round. Ma, what a country for to give the chickens courage. Des hens must just sit and lay and lay, but the po' ducks don't have a mean time. Oh, Lord, sinner is in my way, Daniel.' I would not permit a cook like that inside my house," said Major Pidcock. She may not be dangerous, I suggested. Land, is de folks gwine to shoot me? Naturally I looked, and so did the Major, but it was two of our own mounted escort that she saw out to the right of us among the hills. Tell dem nigger joggies I got no money. Why do they triflin' chillin' ride in de carriage? She did not mean ourselves, but the men with their carbines in the escort wagon in front of us. I looked out at them, and their mouths were wide open for joy at her. It was not a stately progress for twenty-eight thousand dollars in gold and a paymaster to be making. Major Pidcock unbuttoned his duster and reclined to sleep and presently I also felt the after-dinner sloth shutting my eyes pleasantly to this black road. "'Heave a chillin', can't you heave?' I heard our cook say, and felt a stop. "'What's that?' I asked drowsily. "'Seems to be a rock fallen down,' the Major answered. "'Start it, men, roll it!' I roused myself. We were between rocks and banks on the brow of a hill, down which the narrow road descended with a slight turn. I could see the escort wagon halted ahead of us, and beyond it the men stooping at a large stone, around which there was no possible room to drive. This stone had fallen, I reflected, since those travellers for Thomas. There was a shot, and a mule rolled over. I shall never forget that. It was like the theatre for one paralyzed second. The black soldiers, the mule, the hill, all a clear picture seen through an opera-glass, stock still, and nothing to do with me, for a congealed second, 
and, dear me, what a time we had then. Crackings volleyed around us, puffs of smoke jetted blue from rock ramparts, which I had looked at and thought natural, or rather not thought of at all. Earth and gravel spattered up from the ground. The bawling negress spilled off her box and ran in spirals, screaming, Oh, bless my soul, bless my soul! And I saw a yellow duster flap out of the ambulance. Lord gracious, he's a-leavin' us! screeched the cook, and she changed her spirals for a bee-line after him. I should never have run but for this example for I have not naturally the presence of mind, and in other accidents through which I have passed there has never been promptness about me. The reasoning and all has come when it was over, unless it went on pretty long, when I have been sometimes able to leap to a conclusion. But yes, I ran now, straight under a screen of rocks, over the top of which rose the heads of yellow and black curly. The sight of them sent rushing over me the first agreeable sensation I had felt, shapeless rage, and I found myself shouting at them, Scoundrels! Scoundrels! while shooting continued briskly around me. I think my performance would have sincerely entertained them, could they have spared the time for it, and, as it was, they were regarding me with obvious benevolence when Mr. Adams looked evilly at me across the stones, and Black Curly seized the old devil's rifle in time to do me a good turn. Mr. Adams' bullet struck short of me ten feet, throwing the earth in my face. Since then I have felt no sympathy for that tobacco-running pioneer. He listened, coughing, to what Black Curly said, as he pointed to me, and I see now that I have never done a wiser thing than to go unarmed in that country. Curly was telling Mr. Adams that I was harmless. Indeed, that was true. In the bottom of this cup, target for a circled rim of rifles, separated from the widely scattered Major and his men, aware of nothing in particular, and seeing nothing in particular but smoke and rocks and faces peering everywhere, I walked to a stone and sat upon it, hypnotized again into a spectator. From this undisturbed vantage I saw shape itself the theft of the gold, the first theft, that is, for it befell me later to witness a ceremony by which these eagles of Uncle Sam again changed hands in a manner that stealing is as good a name for as any. They had got two mules killed, so that there could be no driving away in a hurry, and I saw that killing men was not a part of their war, unless required as a means to their end. Major Pidcock had spared them this necessity. I could see him nowhere, and with him to imitate I need not pause to account for the members of our dismounted escort. Two soldiers, indeed, lay on the ground, the sergeant and another, who had evidently fired a few resisting shots. But let me say at once that these poor fellows recovered, and I saw them often again through this adventure that bound us together, else I could not find so much hilarity in my retrospect. 
Escort wagon and ambulance stood empty and foolish on the road, and there lay the ingenious stone all by itself, and the carbines all by themselves foolish in the wagon, where the innocent soldiers had left them on getting out to move the stone. Smoke loitered thin and blue over this now exceedingly quiet scene, and I smelt it where I sat. How secure the robbers had felt themselves, and how reckless of identification! Midday, a public road within hearing of a ranch, an escort of a dozen regulars, no masks, and the stroke perpetrated at the top of a descent contrary to all laws of road agency. They swarmed into sight from their ramparts. I cannot tell what number, but several I had never seen before and never saw again. And Mr. Adams and yellow and black curly looked so natural that I wondered if Jenks and the bishop would come climbing down too. But no more old friends turned up that day. Some went to the ambulance swift and silent while others most needlessly stood guard. Nothing was in sight but my seated, inoffensive form, and the only sound was, somewhere among the rocks, the voice of the incessant negress speeding through her prayers. I saw them at the ambulance, surrounding, passing, lifting, stepping in and out, ferreting, then moving slowly up with their booty round the hill's brow then silence, then hoofs, then silence again, except the outpouring negress, scriptural, melodious, symbolic, O oh, Lord, sinner is in my way, Daniel! All this while I sat on the stone. They have done us brown, I said aloud, and hearing my voice waked me from whatever state I had been in. My senses bounded, and I ran to the hurt soldiers. One was very sick. I should not have known what to do for them, but people began to arrive, brought from several quarters by the fusillade, two in a wagon from Cedar Springs, two or three on horses from the herds they were with in the hills, and a very old man from somewhere, who offered no assistance to anyone, but immediately seated himself and began explaining what we all should have done. The negress came out of her rocks, exclamatory with pity over the wounded, and, I am bound to say, of more help to them than any of us, kind and motherly in the midst of her ceaseless discourse. Next arrived Major Pidcock in his duster, and took charge of everything. "'Let your men quit their guns, did you, General?' piped the very old man. Escort oughtn't never to quit their guns. I seen that at Molinas del Rey. And you should a knowed that their stone don't crawl out on the road, like a tortoise, to get the sunshine. Where were you? thundered the major to the mounted escort, who now appeared, half an hour after the event, from our flanks, which they had been protecting at an immense distance. Don't you know your duties to be on hand when you hear firing? "'La, honey,' said the cook, with a guffaw, "'let me get my hands over my mouth.' "'See them walls they fooled you with?' continued the old man, pointing with his stick. "'I could have told you them weren't natural. Them doesn't show like country rock. 
by which I found that he meant their faces were new exposed and not weather-beaten. "'No doubt you could have saved us, my friend,' said the Major, puffing blandly. "'But one cannot readily impress ninety summers.' "'Yes, I could have told you that,' assented the sage, with senile complacence. "'My wife could have told you that. Any smart girl could have told you that.' "'I shall send a dispatch for reinforcements,' announced Pidcock. "'Tap the telegraph wire,' he ordered. "'I have to report to the major,' said a soldier, saluting, "'that the line is cut.' At this I was taken with indecent laughter, and turned away while ninety summers observed, of course them boys would cut the wire if they knew their business. Swearing capably, the Major now accounted clearly to us for the whole occurrence, striding up and down while we lifted the hurt men into the ranch wagon and arranged for their care at Cedar Springs. The escort wagon hurried on to Thomas for a doctor. The ambulance was, of course, crippled of half its team, and the dead mules were cleared from their harness and got to the roadside. Having satisfactorily delivered himself of his explanation, the Major now organized a party for following the trail of the robbers to learn into what region they had betaken themselves. Incredible as it may seem, after my late unenterprising conduct, I asked one of the riders to lend me his horse which he did, remarking that he should not need it for an hour, and that he was willing to risk my staying absent longer than that. So we rode away. The trail was clear, and we had but little trouble to follow it. It took us off to the right through a mounded labyrinth of hillocks, puny and gray like ash heaps, where we rose and fell in through the trough of the sullen landscape. I told Pidcock of my certainty about three of the robbers, but he seemed to care nothing for this, and was something less than civil at what he called my suggestions. "'When I have ascertained their route,' he said, "'it will be time enough to talk of their identity.' In this way we went for a mile or so, the trail leading us onward, frank and straight, to the top of a somewhat higher hill where it suddenly expired off the earth. No breath vanishes cleaner from glass, and it brought us to a dead halt. We retraced the tracks to make sure we had not lost them before, but there was no mistake, and again we halted dead at the vanishing point. Here were signs that something out of the common had happened. Men's feet and horseshoe prints, aimless and superimposed, marked a trodden frame of ground inside which was nothing, and beyond which nothing lay but those faint tracks of wandering cattle and horses that scatter everywhere in this country. Not one defined series, not even a single shod horse, had gone over this hill, and we spent some minutes vainly scouring in circles wider and wider. Often I returned to stare at the trodden, imperturbable frame of ground, and caught myself inspecting first the upper air and next the earth, and speculating if the hills were hollow, and mystery began to film over the hitherto sharp features of black curly and yellow, while the lonely country around grew so unpleasant to my nerves 
that I was glad when Pidcock decided that he must give up for to-day. We found the little group of people beginning to disperse at the ambulance. "'Fooled yer again, did they?' said the old man. "'Played the blanket trick on yer, I expect. Guess your gold got pretty far by now.' With this parting, and propped upon his stick, he went as he had come. Not even at any time of his youth, I think, could he have been companionable, and old age had certainly filled him with the impartial malevolence of the devil. I rejoice to say that he presided at none of our further misadventures. Short twenty-eight thousand dollars and two mules, we set out anew, the major, the cook, and I, along the Thomas Road with the sun drawing closer down upon the long steel saw that the peaks to our westward made. The sight of my shock lay behind me. I knew now well enough that it had been a shock, and that for a long while to come I should be able to feel the earth spatter from Mr. Adams' bullet against my ear and sleeve whenever I might choose to conjure that moment up again and the present comfort in feeling my distance from that stone in the road increase continually put me in more cheerful spirits. With the quick rolling of the wheels many subjects for talk came into my mind, and had I been seated on the box beside the cook we should have found much in common. Ever since her real tenderness to those wounded men I had wished to ask the poor old creature how she came in this weary country, so far from the pleasant fields of cotton and home. Her hair was gray, and she had seen much, else she had never been so kind and skillful at bandaging. And I am quite sure that somewhere in the chambers of her incoherent mind and simple heart abided the sweet, ancient fear of God and love of her fellow-men, virtues I had met but little in Arizona. "'De whole family excusin' too,' she was saying. "'Dey bust loose and tuck to de woods.' And then she moralized upon the two who stayed behind and were shot. But the general, he lowed that was mighty poor reasonin'. I should have been glad to exchange views with her, for Major Pidcock was dull company. This prudent officer was not growing distant from his disaster, and as night began to come and we neared Thomas, I suppose the thought that our ambulance was driving him perhaps to a court-martial was enough to submerge the man in gloom. To me and my news about the robbers he was a little more considerate, although he still made nothing of the fact that some of them lived in the Gila Valley and were of the patriarchal tribe of Meekum. "'Scoundrels like that,' he muttered lugubriously, "'know every trail in the country, and belong nowhere. Mexico is not a long ride from here. They can get a steamer at Guaymas, and take their choice of ports down to Valparaiso. Yes, they'll probably spend that money in South America.' "'Oh, confound that woman!' for the now entirely cheerful negress was singing, "'Dar's de gal, dar's my Susanna, how by gum you know, know her by de red bandana, and de shoestring hangin' on de flow. Dad blame her, and de shoestring hangin', 
Goodness gracious, what you gwine to do? At this sudden cry, and the stopping of the ambulance, I thought more people were come for our gold, and my spirit resigned itself. Sit still was all I should do now, and look for the bright day when I should leave Arizona forever. But it was only Mrs. Sproud. I had clean forgotten her, and did not at once take in to what an important turn the affairs of some of us had come. She stepped out of the darkness and put her hand on the door of the ambulance. "'I suppose you're the paymaster?' Her voice was soft and easy, but had an ample volume. As Pidcock was replying with some dignity that she was correct, she caught sight of me. "'Who is this man?' she interrupted him. "'My clerk,' said Pidcock, "'and this is the promptest thing I can remember of the Major, always accepting his conduct when the firing began on the hill. "'You're asking a good many questions, madam,' he added. "'I want to know who I'm talking to,' said she quietly. "'I think I've seen property of yours this evening.' "'You had better get in, madam, better get in.' "'This is the paymaster's team from Fort Grant,' said Mrs. Sproud to the driver. "'Yes, yes, madam, Major Pidcock, I, I am Major Pidcock, paymaster to the United States Army in the Department of Colorado. I suppose I understand you.' Seven canvas sacks,' said Mrs. Sproud, standing in the road. "'Get in, madam.' You can't tell who may be within hearing. You will find it to your advantage to keep nothing. Mrs. Sproud laughed luxuriously, and I began to discern why black Curly might at times have been loath to face her. I merely meant, madam, I desired to make it clear that, uh, I think I know what you meant, but I have no call to fear the law. It will save you trouble to believe that before we go any further. "'Certainly, madam, quite right.' The man was sweating. What with court-martial and Mrs. Sproud, his withers were wrung. "'You are entirely sure, of course, madam.' "'I am entirely sure I know what I am about. That seems to be more than some do that are interested in this gold. The folks, for instance, that have hid it in my haystack.' "'Haystack! Then they're not gone to Mexico.' Mexico, sir? They live right here in this valley. Now I'll get in, and when I ask you, you will please to set me down. She seated herself opposite us and struck a match. Now we know what we all look like, said she, holding the light up, massive and handsome. This young man is the clerk, and we needn't mind him. I have done nothing to fear the law, but what I am doing now will make me a traveller again. I have no friends here. I was acquainted with a young man. She spoke in the serenest tone, but let fall the match more quickly than its burning made needful. He was welcome in my home. He let them cook this up in my house and never told me. I live a good ways out on the road, and it was a safe place but I didn't think why so many met him, and why they sat around my stable. Once in a while this week they've been joking about winning the soldiers' pay. They often win that. 
but I thought it was just cowboy games, till I heard horses coming quick at sundown this afternoon, and I hid. Will hunted around and said, and said I was on the stage coming from Solomonsville, and so they had half an hour yet. He thought so. And, you see, nobody lives in the cabin but, but me. Mrs. Sproud paused a moment here, and I noticed her breathing. Then she resumed. So I heard them talk some, and when they all left, pretty soon, I went to the haystack, and it was so. Then the stage came along, and I rode to Thomas. You left the gold there? groaned the wretched major, and leaned out of the ambulance. I'm not caring to touch what's none of mine. Wait, sir, please. I get out here. Here are the names I'm sure of. Stop the driver, or I'll jump. She put a paper in the major's hand. It is Mrs. Sproud's haystack, she added. Will you? This will never— uh, Can I find you to-morrow? he said helplessly, holding the paper out to her. I have told you all I know, said Mrs. Sproud, and was gone at once. Major Pidcock leaned back for some moments as we drove. Then he began folding his paper with care. I have not done with that person, said he, attempting to restore his crippled importance. She will find that she must explain herself. Our wheels whirled in the sand, and we came quickly to Thomas, to a crowd of waiting officers and ladies, and each of us had an audience that night. The cook, I feel sure, while I myself was of an importance second only to the Major's. But he was at once closeted with the commanding officer, and I did not learn their counsels, hearing only at breakfast that the first step was taken. The detail sent out had returned from the haystack, bringing gold indeed, one half sackful. The other six were gone, and so was Mrs. Sproud. It was useless to surmise, as we, however, did that whole forenoon, what any of this might mean, but in the afternoon came a sign. A citizen of the Gila Valley had been paying his many debts at the saloon, and through the neighborhood, in gold. In one well known for the past two years to be without a penny, it was the wrong moment to choose for honest affluence, and this citizen was the first arrest. This further instance of how secure the robbers felt themselves to be outdid anything that had happened yet, and I marveled until following events took from me the power of astonishment. The men named on Mrs. Sproud's paper were fewer than I think fired upon us in the attack, but every one of them was here in the valley, going about his business. Most were with the same herd of cattle that I had seen driven by yellow and black curly near the sub-agency, and they, too, were there. The solvent debtor, I should say, was not arrested this morning. Plans that I, of course, had no part in, delayed matters, I suppose, for the sake of certainty. Black Curly and his friends were watched and found to be spending no gold yet, and since they did not show sign of leaving the region but continued with their cattle, 
I imagine every effort was being made to light upon their hidden treasure. But their time came, and soon after it mine. Sterling, my friend, to whom I had finally gone at Carlos, opened the wire door of his quarters where I sat one morning, and with a heartless smile introduced me to a gentleman from Tucson. "'You'll have a chance to serve your country,' said Sterling. I was subpoenaed. "'Certainly not,' I said with indignation. "'I'm going east. I don't live here. You have witnesses enough without me. We all saw the same thing.' "'Witnesses never see the same thing,' observed the man from Tucson. "'It's the government that's after you. But you'll not have to wait. Our case is first on the list.' "'You can take my deposition,' I began. But what need to dwell upon this interview? "'When I come to visit you again,' I said to Sterling, "'let me know.' And that pink-faced, gray-haired captain still shouted heartlessly. "'You're an egotist,' said he. "'Think of the scrape poor old Pidcock has got himself into.' "'The government needs all the witnesses it can get,' said the man from Tucson. "'Luke Jenks is smart in some ways.' "'Luke Jenks?' I sat up in my canvas extension chair. "'Territorial delegate. Firm of Parley and Jenks, Tucson. He's in it.' "'By heavens!' I cried, in unmixed delight but I didn't see him when they were shooting at us. The man from Tucson stared at me curiously. He is counsel for the prisoners, he explained. The delegate to Washington defends these thieves who robbed the United States, I repeated. Says he'll get them off. He's going to stay home from Washington and put it through in shape. It was here that my powers of astonishment went into their last decline, and I withheld my opinion upon the character of Mr. Jenks as a public man. I settled comfortably in my canvas chair. "'The prisoners are citizens of small means, I judge,' said I. "'What fee can they pay for such a service?' "'Ah!' said Sterling. "'That's about it, I guess,' said the man from Tucson. Luke is mighty smart in his law business. Well, gents, good day to you. I must be getting after the rest of my witnesses. Have you seen Mrs. Sproud? I asked him. She's quit the country. We can't trace her. Guess she was scared. But that gold, I exclaimed when Sterling and I were alone. What in the world have they done with those six other bags? Ah, said he, as before. Do you want to bet on that point? Dollars to doughnuts, Uncle Sam never sees a cent of that money again. I'll stake my next quarter's pay. Pooh, said I. That's poor odds against doughnuts if Pigcock has the paying of it. And I took my turn at laughing at the humorous Sterling. That Mrs. Sproud is a sensible woman to have gone, said he reflectively. They would know she had betrayed them, and she wouldn't be safe in the valley. Witnesses who know too much sometimes are found dead in this country, but you'll have government protection. Thank you kindly, said I. That's what I had on the hill. But Sterling took his turn at me again with freshened mirth. 
Well, I think that we witnesses were worth government protection. At seasons of especial brightness and holiday, such as Christmas and Easter, the theatres of the variety order have a phrase which they sometimes print in capitals upon their bills, COMBINATION EXTRAORDINARY, and when you consider Major Pidcock and his pride, and the old plantation cook, and my reserved eastern self, and our coal-black escort of the hill, more than a dozen, including Sergeant Brown and the private, both now happily recovered of their wounds, you can see what appearance we made descending together from the mean southern Pacific train at Tucson, under the gaze of what I take to have been the town's whole population, numbering five thousand. Sterling, who had come to see us through, began at his persiflage immediately, and congratulated me upon the house I should play to, speaking of box-office receipts and a benefit night. Tucson is more than half a Mexican town, and in its crowd upon the platform I saw the gaudy shawls, the earrings, the steeple-straw hats, the old shriveled cigarette-rolling apes, and the dark-eyed girls, and sifted with these the loungers of our own race, boots, overalls, pistols, hotel clerks, express agents, freight-hands, waitresses, red-shirts, soldiers from Lowell barracks, and officers, and in this mass and mess of color and dust and staring, Bishop Meekum in his yellow duster by the door of the Hotel San Xavier. But his stare was not, I think now, quite of the same idleness with the rest. He gave me a short nod, yet not unfriendly, as I passed by him to register my name. By the counter I found the wet-eyed Mowry standing. "'How's business on the other side of the track?' I said to him. "'Fair to Midland. Get them mines he was after at Globe?' "'You've forgotten, I told you, they're a property I don't care for, Mr. Mowry. I suppose it's interest in this recent gold discovery that brings you to Tucson.' He had no answer for me, but a shrewd, shirking glance that flattered my sense of acumen, and added pleasantly, so many of your Arizona citizens have forsaken silver for gold just now. I wrote my name in the hotel book while he looked to remind himself what it was. Why, you're not to stay here, said Sterling, coming up. You're expected at the barracks. He presented me at once to a knot of officers, each of whom in turn made me known to some additional bystander until it seemed to me that I shook a new hand sixty times in this disordered minute by the hotel book, and out of the sixty caught one name, which was my own. These many meetings could not be made perfect without help from the saloon-keeper, who ran his thriving trade conveniently at hand in the office of the San Xavier. Our group remained near him, and I silently resolved to sleep here at the hotel, away from the tempting confusion of army hospitality upon this eve of our trial. We were expected, however, to dine at the post, and that I was ready to do. Indeed, I could scarcely have got myself out of it without rudeness, for the ambulance was waiting us guests at the gate. 
We went to it along a latticed passageway at the edge of a tropical garden, only a few square yards in all, but how pretty! And what an oasis of calm in the midst of this teeming desolation of unrest! It had upon one side the railway station, wooden, sordid, congesting with malodorous, packed humanity, on the next the rails themselves and the platform, with steam and bells and baggage-trucks rolling and bumping. The hotel stood on the third, a confusion of tongues and trampings, while a wide space of dust, knee-deep and littered with maneuvering vehicles, hemmed in this silent garden on the fourth side. A slender, slow, little fountain dropped inaudibly among some palms, a giant cactus, and the broad-spread shade of trees I did not know. This was the whole garden, and a tame young antelope was its inhabitant. He lay in the unchanging shade, his large eyes fixed remotely upon the turmoil of this world, and a sleepy charm touched my senses as I looked at his domain. Instead of going to dinner, or going anywhere, I should have liked to recline indefinitely beneath those palms and trail my fingers in the cool fountain. Such enlightened languor, however, could by no happy chance be the lot of an important witness in a western robbery trial, and I dined and wined with the jovial officers, at least talking no business. End of section 13